Morning, Sabbath blessings. Uh, welcome you here this morning. Uh, those joining us on Facebook and uh, our uh, church YouTube channel, God bless you. It's good to be with you. Uh, welcome and joining us with our Pal Talk Church as well and those that are with us here uh, this morning. We're about to get started into our study here, the final study in our series about the closing scenes. And we want to come before the Lord and we want to ask the Lord to bless us in our study here this morning and lead us into the truth. So I invite you to bow your heads with me. And let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day and the joy it is for us to come together in the spirit of holiness and to worship thee as brethren. And uh, we come together here singing praises to your name. We come together here thanking you for the wonderful blessings that you've poured out upon each and every one of us. Uh, we are thankful that you're there with us through our trials and helping us to be uh, the overcomers like our Savior was and the example that he, he has uh, been to each and every one of us. We are so thankful for all of that. We're thankful for your love towards us, that you emptied heaven so that we may be saved. And Father, we pray that you forgive us for our sins. We accept the gift of Jesus uh, that you've given to us. Uh, for the forgiveness of sins and that we may be overcomers in this life and bring glory to thy name. That's our prayer and our wish, Lord, that we may bring glory to thy name and all we think and say and do. We pray for those on our prayer list. We lift them up before you. We pray that you be very near to them. Be with those who couldn't be with us here this morning. And Father, I pray for uh, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon your people, that we may press together, come closer together with each other and with thee, and especially on this Holy Sabbath day as we open your Holy Word, uh, Lord, help us to have discernment and wisdom and to study to show ourselves approved unto God, uh, as the Scriptures say. And give me the words to speak, Lord. May they not be filled with opinion, but with the truth that will touch hearts. Prepare those hearts now, I pray in Jesus' name, for he's so worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, friends, like I mentioned, this is uh, part seven, the last uh, part of our series, the closing scenes following in the crisis of Christ. And we've been looking at the, the parallels of that last week of Jesus, those closing scenes, that final crisis of Christ, the parallels between that and what the remnant will be going through uh, before uh, it's all said and done in this uh this great controversy between Christ and Satan is finally finished. And as I start this final message, the final deliverance is the title of this message, um, you may remember this wonderful statement that I've shared so many times, um, but uh, um, I want to bring it to your remembrance again because it's been a couple of uh, we've had a couple of weeks here since we've got, since we've talked about this. And I want to bring it back, and this is kind of the theme of what this series is about. It's from the Desire of Ages, page 83. Move that over. It's uh, Desire of Ages, page 83. It says, It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point. How many of us do that? And here she's saying it would be well for us to do this and take it point by point. 
and let the imagination grasp each scene. Put yourself there. And especially the closing ones, the closing scenes. And I think we've been doing that in this series, uh, um, the closing scenes. We're putting ourselves there and we're taking it point by point. And so the closing scenes of his crisis, uh, I hope that we found, has everything to do with his people in this day, his remnant people. All the eternity of the past was focused on those closing days and hours of the life of Jesus in this world. Wouldn't you agree, friends? All eternity focused on Gethsemane. It focused on Calvary. And it is true also that all the eternity of the past, all the experiences of those 6,000 years of the great controversy here in this world focus on the closing experiences of the remnant people. And in this series, I've shared with you many of the parallels between the closing scenes of the life of Christ and the closing scenes that will befall the last generation of God's people, that remnant of her seed, as it says in Genesis 3.15, as it talks about in Revelation 12.17. I shared some of the terrible things, friends, that are, that are going to happen as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Christ. And already... Uh, I believe as we, we look at the news, we read, we hear such things. You know, uh, while we were away, this this evil that uh, uh, perpetrators, and I have to believe there was more than one, uh, in, in Las Vegas who just opened up on all these innocent people. Um, we see the direction that things are going uh, in, in this, you know, land of the free and home of the brave. Right, and the coming religious persecution that will be akin to what happened during the Dark Ages, it's it's just getting worse and worse and worse. This lamb-like beast, this country is beginning and has for a while now began to speak as a dragon. It's going to get worse. And so this morning, as I close up this series, I I must tell you a little more about some of these things. But then then I want to share. After that, I want to share the best part where God's faithful commandment-keeping uh, people will be delivered out of the hands of their enemies forever. Is that not good news, friends? That's the best news, isn't it? But before we get to the good part, I need to tell you that one of these days in the not-too-distant future, the protection of civil law will no longer apply to those that are convicted by the Holy Spirit to keep God's law especially the Sabbath. And all over the world, there will be a, a, a concerted effort to do away with those that are out of step with the rest of the religious world. You know, the world, though, made up of an amalgam of, uh, of beliefs and religions will be united against that small group of people that refuse to follow the dictates of man or the commandments of God that are found in the Bible. And when the rubber really starts to hit the road, who do you suppose this image of the beast will go after first? I have no doubts they'll go after those who are being the most vocal. Those they consider to be spewing what they call hate speech today. Although it's God's holy word. 
And I fully believe that those who are clearly exposing the devil's plans, you know, they're going to end up in prison if they live to see the Lord come. You know, ever since learning the truth so many years ago, uh, I've had this thought enter into my mind that, that prison is where I'll be found in that day if I'm blessed by the Lord to, to live through it. And I pray that I can avoid it, of course. Uh, but wherever the Lord would have me, there should I go. Amen, beloved? As I've said before, if you're where the Lord wants to be, you should be very, very happy. That's You're fulfilling the Lord's will, right? So let's be where the Lord wishes us to be. Amen? And so... What I'm saying is don't be surprised when false accusations are made and, and uh, uh, trumped-up charges are, are uh, perpetrated against various ministries before it's all over. False accusations were made against Jesus and the apostle, uh, weren't they? We've seen that, haven't we? And it will be repeated against Christ's followers, uh, the remnant people. Jesus said in John 15, verses 20 to 21, he said, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. We need to be praying for one another, friends, and, and especially for those God has specifically called to be watchmen on the walls of Zion. Uh, we, you know, being a watchman, I covet your prayers, let me tell you. Uh, the devil hates each and every one of us, but he hates the leaders in uh, the remnant of God, especially. And so as the death decree mentioned in Revelation thirteen fifteen draws near, those that have abandoned the law of God for a man-made law uh, will conspire together to get rid of commandment keepers once and for all. And that's what the devil's uh, deception is. Hey, we just get rid of these people, we'll have the world to ourselves, and it'll all be peace. Peace and safety. Peace will reign. And they do this, essentially, when you, you understand God's word, you understand the truth. They do this because the disobedient, they hate the reproof that a holy life reveals. And a daily reminder of their sinful course is just too much for them to take. It angers them because they, they don't have the Spirit of Christ. They have the Spirit of Antichrist within, though they, they believe they're following God. And so it will finally be determined by the wicked, as inspiration does declare and prophecy tells us, to literally wipe these Sabbath keepers out in one night. And it will be, it'll be like what happened during the St. Bartholomew Massacre, if you know your history you know, when the king of France, he, he was urged on, <laughs> coerced by the papacy, he killed thousands of Protestants. As the bell of the palace tolling at dead of night rang out, that was the signal for the slaughter to begin as Protestants slept quietly in their homes, beloved, trusting to their king to keep them safe. They were dragged out of bed without a warning and murdered in the streets in cold blood. You can read about that in the book, The Great Controversy, page 272. And the next time something like this happens, or at least attempted, I should say, it will be apostate Protestants that will do the persecuting, just like the papacy before them. 
Protestants who have forgotten what they were protesting about will make an image to the papal beast and with its help seek to destroy those that speak out against the false Sunday Sabbath. And during the time when the death decree is getting close to enforcement, God's people, they're going to be scattered all over the world. Some will already be in prison for their faith, while others will be hidden in forests and, and mountains and solitary retreats. and You know what they're going to be doing while they're scattered all over the world like that? They'll all be pleading for divine protection and the quick return of Jesus Christ. They will have had their Gethsemane prayer experience and are prepared for the mob. And as they're praying to God for deliverance, our men will anxiously, waiting for the law to go in effect, the death decree, they will anxiously be getting ahead of themselves. They can begin the work of death. They, they want to jump the gun, so to speak. But here's the good part. And maybe some of you have heard this before, but man's extremity is God's opportunity. Have you ever heard that before? Man's extremity is God's opportunity and He'll interpose for the deliverance of His chosen people. I'll share that with you in the book Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 373. When His people shall be in the greatest danger, seemingly unable to stand against the powers of Satan, God will work in their behalf. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. And even though the saints don't know at this point exactly when God will intervene in their behalf, they've read the end of the story. And they know God will deliver them as He has promised. And so they continue to pray in faith while at the same time hordes of evil men will be anxiously waiting to pounce upon their prey as soon as they can. And because these evil men are so anxious to begin taking pot shots at those they hate, those they believe to be enemies of law and order, and extremely unpatriotic, some will no doubt try to begin their work before they can legally do so, as I said before. But it will be to no avail, friends. Because human probation will be closed by this time. And God isn't going to allow it. It served no purpose for righteousness but only please the devil. And our God does not please the devil. Now the reason I say that the wicked will attempt to destroy God's people in the dead of night like the, the St. Bartholomew uh, massacre is because it's at midnight when the death decree will go into effect. And so in the dark of night with their, you know, their infrared scopes and heat, detecting devices, they'll begin to hunt down God's people. And that's when God will begin to manifest His power for their deliverance. Can I get an amen? And as the God of nature prepares to descend the skies, nature will be convulsed. You can read all about that in Revelation 15 and 16 when the seven last plagues are poured out. And when the seventh plague has been poured out, Revelation 16 verse 17 says, There came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. 
And when God utters those words, that signals that Jesus is about ready to come. I shared this with you, the last message in this series. It's from The Great Controversy, page 636. I've shortened it. It says, It is at midnight that God manifests His power for the deliverance of His people. The sun appears, shining in its strength. Signs and wonders follow in quick succession. The wicked look with terror and amazement upon the scene, while the righteous behold with solemn joy the tokens of their deliverance. In the midst of the angry heavens is one clear space of indescribable glory. Whence comes the voice of God like the sound of many waters saying, It is done. It is done. And what will be the results of the voice of God? Revelation 16, verse 18. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such as what was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. That's the voice of God shaking the heavens and the earth, friends. Now remember, back there at Calvary, there was an earthquake, wasn't there? When Jesus laid down His life on the cross and there was an earthquake when He rose from the dead. There is to be an earthquake that marks the deliverance of God's people. Just as there was uh, one that delivered God's Son. And it will not only be the deliverance of the righteous living at this time. Daniel 12 verse 2 says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And when you look at Revelation 1 7, it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, it says, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. So, these scriptures speak of that special resurrection that we looked at before. And the reason for this is given in the description, friends, uh, of this scene from page 285 in, in early writings and page 637 in the Great Controversy. We read those um, in our last uh, last study in this series. I encourage you to go and read those for yourself. It just I don't have time to do it again here, but it, it explains that. But after that earthquake, Jesus came forth from the tomb glorified. And those righteous who've been sleeping in their graves since 1844 come forth from the tomb glorified to hear God's covenant of peace with those who have kept His law, symbolized by the 144,000 you read about in Revelation. And the wicked few who are raised are witnesses to behold him in his glory to see the honor placed upon the loyal and the obedient. You see, every doubt is to be removed in all creation. And there will be none left to say that God is not loving or just. And then those that pierced him and those that mocked and derided Christ's dying agonies and the most violent opposers of his truth and his people are going to die a second time. Only to be raised again after the thousand years mentioned in Revelation 20. And finally, they'll die a third time with all the rest of the wicked who have ever lived when fire comes down from God out of heaven to devour them and they'll never live again. This is what Revelation 20 verse 14 and 21.8 calls the second death from which there will be no resurrection. 
second death for the majority, you see. But the third for that special group who were literally responsible for Christ's death and the persecution of his people and the truth. But before those who pierced Christ die the second time, they, along with the rest of the wicked that have not yet died, the wicked that are alive to see Jesus come, will be overwhelmed with horror and shudder in fear as they see that those they persecuted were indeed God's faithful, commandment-keeping people. Now I want you to notice what it says in Isaiah 13. I'm going to read verses 16 to 13. And this is speaking of uh, what it will be like for the wicked when Jesus comes. Notice what Isaiah says. Verse 6, Howl ye for the day the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. This is very descriptive, isn't it? Tell you what, they shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. If any of you have had kidney stones, well, I'm speaking of men because women who've had children, they understand this. But I've heard that the pain of a kidney stone is, you know, I'm not going to say equivalent, but it gives men an idea. Let me tell you, I've had kidney stones. That's a whole lot of pain. It says, And their faces shall be as flames, be red. Behold, the day the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Verse 10, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold. Who's that speaking of? God's remnant people. Even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Also Isaiah chapter 2 verses 19 to 21. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made each one for himself to worship to the moles and to the bats to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty when He ariseth to shake terribly the earth. This day's coming, friends. And this goes right along with what it says in Revelation 6, verses 14 to 17. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, that's slave, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Verse 15. 
And so as the wicked are feeling the effects of their decision to rebel against God's law and to destroy those that still hold it sacred, a marvelous change will come over those who have held fast their faith in the very face of death. I mean, just think of it. The righteous have been suddenly delivered from men that have been transformed into demons, but now their voices rise in triumph at their deliverance. Notice what it says in Psalms 46. And the language in this, this psalm was written long before to reflect the feelings of those that will experience God's deliverance at the coming of Christ. Verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Verse 7, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Amen and praise God. And while these words of praise and assurance ascend to heaven, I can just imagine the, the dark and angry clouds being swept back on either side to reveal the glory of God. Can't you imagine that? And do you know what that glory is? Do you? It's God's character of love. And we know that the law, the Ten Commandments, is a transcript of His character. The Ten Commandments are going to be revealed to the whole world at this time as the great standard of righteousness by which every person will be measured. And Romans 8, 4 says that the righteousness of the law will be fulfilled in the lives of all who walk after the Spirit. Now, we can't keep the law by ourselves. But we will keep it if we are in Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8, 1. And 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. And Romans 13:10 says love is the fulfilling of the law. And so we can see how this all fits together. And Jesus showed us by his life, friends, how it all fits together. And he's going to have a generation of people that demonstrate how it all fits together. Psalms 50, verse 3. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. 4,000 years ago, mid thunder and flame and smoke, God's holy law was proclaimed from Mount Sinai as the guide of life for all generations. And right at the end of time, it's going to be revealed to everyone that it's also the rule of judgment. It will be clearly seen that the words of the Ten Commandments are so plain that no one will be able to excuse themselves for breaking them. God's Ten Commandments, friends, they're short, they're concise. A lot is comprehended in just a few words. And the time is coming when they will be presented to the view of all the inhabitants of earth and everyone will know exactly 
where they have strayed from the path of righteousness and what they should have done but failed to do. And if you've been walking after the Spirit, you won't have anything to worry about. But for those who've who've been walking after the flesh, they're going to be horrified to learn that they've been barred from ever entering the holy city and inhabiting the earth made new. And can you imagine, friends, the horror and despair of those who find out too late that they've been trampling upon God's holy requirements? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And we did it in your name, Lord. And in thy name have cast out devils. It was always in your name, Lord. And in thy name done many wonderful works. Always in your name. And then will I profess unto you, unto them, this is Jesus, I never knew you depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now what is iniquity again? Remember we studied the sin issue? What is iniquity? It's sin. But it's not ignorant sin, is it? But willful disobedience to God's law that comes from an unconverted heart. And the Bible is clear that sin is the transgression of the law. It's a transgression of the Ten Commandments. And so everyone that's lost will be a lawbreaker. They have chosen to be a lawbreaker. And everyone that is saved will be a lawkeeper. They have chosen to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And by His grace and His power living in us, we keep the law of God. Because it's not that we're saved because of law-keeping, friends but because we've accepted or rejected the one that gave the law as the standard by which to live. And you've heard me say uh, this before. God the Father has only one question for us, and it, it is what are we going to do with the gift of His Son? It's like the illustration I've used of the peach tree, you remember. The peach tree doesn't produce peaches in order to become a peach tree, but because it is a peach tree. And it's the same way with the Christian. We don't keep the law in order to become Christians, but because we are Christians. And we become Christians by simply accepting the gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ, into our lives as Savior and Lord. And when Jesus lives within, we will do what He asks us to do. John fourteen fifteen. remember Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. It's a more accurate way to say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Also in John 15.10, Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. You can't separate love and obedience, friends, but that's what many are trying to do today when they teach that that law-keeping has nothing to do with salvation. It is the fruit of salvation in Christ. And the reason the Lord gave us His law is so we might compare our characters to it. To learn our defects while there's opportunity for repentance and reform. But during the time when Jesus is coming to deliver His people, it's going to be too late for reformation. Too late. Don't let it be too late for you. 
those who fail to bring their lives into harmony with God's law while they can will in the end see that they're without excuse. But it will be too late by then to do anything about it. The plan of salvation is complete and there's no longer opportunity, you see, to be covered with Jesus' shed blood as an atonement. And once people recognize that they've been enemies of God's law, and that's what they are, from the ministers down to the least among them, they will all of a sudden have a new conception of truth and duty. But it'll be too late. Too late they'll see that the Sabbath of the fourth commandment is the seal of the living God. Too late they'll see the true nature of their false Sunday Sabbath and the sandy foundation upon which they've been building. Too late they'll find out that they've been fighting against God. But they could have known. They had ample opportunity to study the scriptures for themselves instead of placing blind faith in their religious leaders that have led them down the road of perdition while professing to guide them to the gates of paradise? You know, one of these days, many pastors and priests and rabbis and imams, they're going to see how terrible are the results of their unfaithfulness. Oh, friends, and fearful will be the doom of the one to whom God shall say, Depart, thou wicked servant. And I don't want to be one of them. That's why I'm telling you these things now. <laughs> I don't want to hear those words. The friends, you know, right now it's not too late for repentance and reform. Jesus is still our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary where he can still apply his blood to cover our sins. And I hope that if you see your life is out of harmony with God's law on even one point that you'll make a course correction while there's still time. While there's still time. Soon the voice of God, like peals of loudest thunder, will be heard from heaven, delivering the everlasting covenant to His people. That is, the everlasting agreement God made concerning faith in Christ and obedience to His law. Let's go back to Isaiah. Let's read about that. Isaiah 24. Verses 1 to 6. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken this word. Verse 4, The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Verse 6, Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, they, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. You know, friends, the reason the everlasting covenant is called everlasting is because the salvation of the human race has always been the object of heaven. 
It's a covenant of grace and mercy that was made between the three members of the Godhead before the foundation of the world. You read about it in 1 Peter 1 and verse 20. And just as surely as there never was a time when God was not, so surely there was never a moment when it was not his purpose to manifest his grace to humanity. And never forget that. When John says God is love, it means he's always been love. This everlasting covenant, as far as humanity is concerned, was first made with Adam and Eve in Eden when they were given the promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. And to everyone for all time, this covenant, it offered pardon and the assisting grace of God for future obedience through faith in Christ. That's how the, the patriarchs during the Old Testament times received the hope of salvation. And it's no different today. <coughs> it's no different today. This is the same covenant that was renewed to Abraham in the promise that you find in Genesis twenty-two eighteen. Remember when God told him, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? And of course, this promise pointed to Christ as the, the seed. That's how Abraham understood it. And he trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And it was this faith that was accounted unto him for righteousness, as it says in Genesis 15, 6, Romans 4, verse 3. But here's the point I want to make. The covenant with Abraham also maintained the authority of God's law. In Genesis 17, verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham. And he said, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And in Genesis 26, 5, God tells us what he meant by that mandate. When he said, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And by the way, that was before God wrote the Ten Commandments on tables of stone. Before God gave the Ten Commandments, those Ten Commandments through Moses, Abraham knew there was a law. And by being obedient to that law is how he walked perfectly before God. And remember what it says in Galatians 3.29? If we belong to Christ the way Abraham did, then we are of Abraham's seed, spiritually speaking. And heirs according to the promises God made to him. And so the covenant of grace is not just a New Testament truth. It existed in the mind of God from all eternity, friends. And this is why it's called the everlasting covenant. And there's hope for us only as we come under the everlasting covenant God made with our first parents in Eden, renewed to Abraham, which again is the covenant of grace by faith in Christ and His shed blood. The gospel preached to Abraham, through which he had hope, is the same gospel that is preached to us today. It's the same gospel I'm telling you about. Let's take a look at Hebrews 13. 
verses 20 and 21, and then we'll get back to the sequence of events as they unfold in the very near future. Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And here's another thing. One other thing. To us as to Israel of old, the seventh-day Sabbath is given for a perpetual covenant. You can read that in Exodus 31, 16. And to those who reverence his holy day, the Sabbath is a sign that God recognizes them as his chosen people, Exodus 20, 20. And it's also a pledge that he will fulfill to them his everlasting covenant. And every person who accepts this sign as part of God's government places himself under the divine everlasting covenant, friends. Now let's get back to what I was saying a few minutes ago when God makes good on his promise to deliver the everlasting covenant to his waiting people. Like peals of loudest thunder, God's words are going to roll through the earth. Remember, we're reading that. And as God's faithful people stand listening, their eyes are going to be, be fixed upward towards heaven. Why would that be? Because that's where the voice came from, right? Do you remember what happened to Moses' face when he came down from Mount Sinai after being with God for 40 days and 40 nights? What was his face like? Well, that's what's going to happen to the faces of God's people just before the Lord comes. And the wicked won't be able to look upon them for the glory of God. It's going to be shining brightly. And that's when the blessing will be pronounced upon those who have honored God by keeping His Sabbath holy, when the rest of the world have forgotten the day He said to remember. And there will be a mighty shout of victory from the saints. And this parallels, actually, the, the shouts from all the angels you know, if you study this out, when, when the Father gave his blessing to the sacrifice of Christ when he returned to heaven immediately after the resurrection, you recall? He said to Mary, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. The covenant they had made to redeem man had been ratified by Christ's righteous life and death for our sins. And so he returned and, and it was accepted and the angels shouted with, the, with joy and shout of victory. It's also at this time that God declares the moment of Christ's return. As we read before, early writings, page 285. The mountains shook like a reed in the wind and cast out ragged rocks all around. The sea boiled like a pot and cast out stones upon the land. And as God spoke the day and the hour of Jesus' coming and delivered the everlasting covenant to his people, he spoke one sentence and then paused while the words were rolling through the earth. And soon afterward, there will be clouds that, that surround Jesus as he, he draws closer to the earth. And God's people will know that this is, this is in fulfillment of the prophetic sign that the Scriptures had promised them, that they trusted. You remember what happened as the disciples watched Jesus ascend to heaven after his resurrection? 
In Acts 1 and verse 9 it says, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And verse 11, it says, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall come, shall so come, they said, in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He's coming back just like he left, friends. He's coming back just like he left. There can be no deceptions. And then again, Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Now, these are clouds of angels, not literal clouds. Well, there may be some clouds. I don't know. But I'd like to see it, wouldn't you? But these are clouds of angels. Because in Matthew 25, 31, Jesus himself said, when he comes, all the holy angels are coming uh, with him. And so the people of God know for sure that this is the sign of the Son of Man coming to take them home with him. And in solemn silence, God's children will gaze upon this scene as it draws nearer and nearer to the earth. And as Jesus gets closer and closer, they begin to see his form as he comes as a mighty conqueror. And Revelation 19 gives a dramatic description of this scene. I encourage you to read it. And when Jesus comes back, he's not coming as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but as victor in heaven and earth. 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands of angels will attend him on his way. We can't even imagine, friends, the splendor that will be portrayed during this time. Nothing on earth has ever taken place like this before. And as this living cloud comes even nearer, every eye beholds the Prince of Life. Not wearing a crown of thorns this time, but a crown of glory rests on his brow, and his countenance shines brighter than the noonday sun. And while the righteous literally shake with indescribable joy, upon the rejectors of God's mercy falls the terror of eternal despair. Even the righteous are going to be overcome with the glory of the scene and all classes of people cry out, who shall be able to stand? And the voice of Jesus is heard in reply to that question saying, my grace is sufficient for you. But what about those that rejected his grace? Gonna be terrible. Let's read Revelation six, and we'll begin with verse fourteen. We'll read to the end of the chapter. And by the way, the signs mentioned in the previous verses have already been fulfilled, and so we're now living between verses thirteen and fourteen. So let's go to verse 14. It says, And the heaven departed as a scroll when it's rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. 
and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men. Remember, we read this before. And every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? The wicked pray to be buried beneath the rocks of the mountains, friends, rather than meet the face of the one they have despised and rejected. When the voice of Jesus is heard saying, my grace is sufficient for you, you see, that voice the wicked also recognize. Because countless times in the past, that voice is the one that has called them to repentance. And it will awaken memories that they would like to forget. Things like warnings despised, invitations refused, privileges slighted. And as I mentioned earlier, there will be those who mocked Christ during his trial and they'll remember his words when he said to them in Matthew 26, 64, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Those who just a little while before would have destroyed God's faithful commandment keeping people now witness the glory that rests upon them. And in the midst of their terror, they hear the voices of the saints, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And the wicked will wish they were them. <laughs> but it cannot be. They had their opportunity multiple times, but in reality they would, you know, they never they never wanted a heart change. They never wanted to be converted. Now they see, oh, I'm I'm sorry for that. But they're not really repentant. They're sorry they got caught. They're sorry they're missing out. Their heart hasn't changed. They don't want it to change. And so their character is sealed. You want to know why they can't change their minds now? Revelation 22, 11. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. They made their choice. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. They chose that. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let them be holy still. Things have been sealed. Your character has been sealed. And amid all the commotion of lightning and thunder and the convulsions of the earth and the confusion of their own dreadful thoughts, those that played a part in the sufferings of Christ, those that came up in that special resurrection we read about before, they will hear the Son of God call forth the sleeping saints. That is, all the righteous from the time of Adam to the last Christian that died. As Jesus looks upon the graves of his faithful people, it'll be similar, you know, to that day he raised Lazarus from, from the tomb, you remember? Only this time he's not going to say, Lazarus come forth. 
He'll call all the sleeping saints to rise from the, their dusty beds. And throughout the whole earth, the righteous dead will hear that voice. Oh, you can read about it in John 5 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24. And they that shall hear shall live. They shall receive immortality. But let's notice the sequence of events as they're recorded, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 54. Behold, I show you a mystery, Paul says. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And the Father says, It is done. That's what he's talking about. In First Thessalonians 4, verse 13, it rounds out the picture here. Paul says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. They're going to be lifted up to go to heaven first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And all the redeemed will shout Hallelujah! as they join Jesus and the cloud of holy angels, and as we all move onward and upward towards the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And when we get there, do you know what's going to happen? Jesus is going to open wide the pearly gates, friends. And he's going to say, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And you know something else? Our Heavenly Father Himself will be there. And he's going to say, Welcome home, children. Welcome home. And all who have kept the truth will be able to enter in. Final deliverance. Friends, do you wish to be there on that day? I sure do. And Jesus has shown us beforehand so we can be prepared to endure and be fit for that day. And before I close up, I want to share with you quickly twelve of the many parallels we have learned in this series of studies. I'm going to share twelve of them. There's more. There's more. But these are some of the 
the ones that really stand out. First, Jesus foretold his final crisis to prepare his disciples. He did it many different times. They just couldn't couldn't grasp it. And through prophecy, friends, Jesus has foretold what is coming for the remnant of God. That's that's a parallel right there. Second, second parallel. Christ's daily trials and Gethsemane prayer experience prepared him to stand without a mediator. The remnant must have daily trials and a Gethsemane prayer experience to stand without a mediator. To make that demonstration, friends. To all creation, remember, a generation of people. To be baptized with the baptism that Jesus was baptized with. Here's a third parallel. An angel strengthened Christ to face the mob. You remember, Gabriel came down and strengthened him. An angel bringing the latter rain strengthens the remnant to face the mob. A fourth parallel. Jesus was betrayed by a former follower. It was Judas. The remnant will be betrayed by former brethren. Do you see the parallels, friends? A fifth parallel. Jesus was brought before the church councils and accused by the professed church of blasphemy. The remnant will be brought before church councils and accused by the professed church of blasphemy. It's clear. Sixth parallel. Jesus was brought before the state and accused of treason. The remnant will be brought before the state and accused of treason. A seventh parallel. Jesus was convicted by the state and sentenced to death. The remnant will be convicted by the state and sentenced to death. Eighth parallel, Jesus suffered alone. The remnant will suffer alone. A ninth parallel, Jesus died for our sins. The remnant go through a death-like experience as is described as the time of Jacob's trouble and would rather die than sin. And they get right to that point with the death decree and about to die when they're delivered. A tenth parallel. Jesus was sealed in a tomb of stone. I really like this parallel. He was sealed in a tomb of stone and protected. The remnant are sealed by God and protected by the rock, Jesus Christ. Amen. Eleven. Eleventh parallel. There was an earthquake and Jesus was delivered from the tomb in the dark part of the first day. And there's an earthquake and the remnant are delivered at midnight. And the twelfth parallel, Jesus goes to heaven to ratify the covenant with the Father. The remnant ratify the covenant of peace with the Father. Like I said, there's more. But there's twelve that really stand out. And so, beloved, Jesus has warned us, hasn't He, before time so that we can learn to trust Him in all things, that we can grow in faith to withstand what He withstood, to have that Gethsemane prayer experience that He has. He's our example. He demonstrated what we are to become in order to live in the kingdom of God. You see, we are to give the final demonstration 
to all creation that God is love and his love can reform man and fit him to be a citizen of the eternal kingdom. And I see, friends, let us by faith. Let's study the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes and make the preparations to endure and follow the Lamb wherever He goeth. Will you do that with me? Let's pledge to do that. Let's pledge to God. Let's give God our hearts and say we wish to follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do again thank you so much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for this opportunity to be the sons and daughters of God. And we humbly ask that you pour out upon us your Holy Spirit to change our hearts and our minds that we may put away foolish things, that we may come in line with the truth that you're shown to us, that we may change habits that will keep us from the kingdom, that we will be overcomers as our Savior was an overcomer and overcome temptations. Help us to have that Gethsemane prayer experience so that we may face the mob that's coming that we may endure, have that steadfast endurance that it says in Revelation 14, that steadfast endurance of the saints. May we be among those who keep the commandments and have the faith of Jesus. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.